and some themes. Um, the section today that Rennie read for us, chapter 24, is called by one commentator, Peter Enns, um, a swing chapter. He calls it a transitionary chapter where um, up until this point, we've seen a lot of narrative from the beginning of the book, given this story of the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt and God sending this redeemer to deliver his people and his name was Moses. He brought them out of slavery through the Red Sea. If you guys have seen the Charlton Heston movie, you know all that part of it. But then there's this long wilderness section where they kind of wander. And then 50 days after their freeing, their freedom from Egypt, they wind up at the base of this mountain called the Mountain of God, called Mount Sinai. That's where they're going to be for the rest of the book. And actually, further on into the Bible, they stay at this mountain before they set off for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before entering the promised land. So as we're at this swing chapter, the next 15 chapters, which we're going to cover in six weeks, are going to be all about tent making, making a big old tabernacle, this big tent with religious furnishings and places for altars and offerings and for these priests, kind of these mediator figures, to try to get people right with God. It is uh, not the kind of like REI tent, so if you're like interested in outdoors stuff, this is much hotter climate with a much bigger tent with much different purposes. But as we um, move into that, it's probably going to go without saying that this will feel very culturally removed. Like most of us you know, hearing that chapter read, probably in this last week haven't built an altar and then like threw a bunch of blood against the bottom of it. I'm, I'm assuming you guys don't generally go first to applying that kind of section. Most of us haven't set up 12 stone pillars in our yard as a remembrance. Um, these seem very culturally removed, very different traditions and practices than what we're used to. So I'm hoping with uh, this week and the next um, six weeks, as we look at these themes and patterns that are, that are shown, that are seen through these different traditions, through these religious rites and practices, that we can see how much it applies and that they're all pointing to Jesus. We really believe that there are no boring sections of the Bible. Even though there are sections that may be hard to get through and hard to see how they point to Jesus, sections like these have so many places that point to Jesus and that connect to our lives that I've honestly found this sermon one of the harder ones to prepare for because I felt like I had to pick or choose certain things to emphasize because there's so much richness, there's so much overlap in all these themes that point to Jesus. So rather than picking or choosing, I decided we would just spend a bunch of time in Bible verses and in quotes and in some very thick symbolism from the Old Testament and just trusting that as this section is kind of centered around this mountain with these three stages, these three different places on the mountain, the base of the mountain, the middle of the mountain, and the, and the peak, God is intending to show more of his presence, to show more of himself at the peak of the mountain. And God, I believe, has things he wants to show us. There may be things that seem um, very vague or very up there and kind of over our heads. And I pray that we, as we get into this section, that we'll be listening closely and seeing what this says about how we are able to access the presence of God, how we're able to be near him, whether we believe it or not. This chapter shows how God has made a way for us to be near him. So we're going to look at Israel's response to the law, which has just been given, and then look a lot at this mountain and how this mountain actually, this section, this chapter around a mountain, points towards the last 15 chapters and helps explain what we're going to be getting into. 
and next week. So join me in prayer, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we trust that um, we need not have to rely on long stories or finding parallels to, to really see beauty in your word, to see all the rich symbolism, all the, the shadows of Jesus that point forward towards him. So God, as we um, sit here under your word, as we listen to your words through the prophet Moses, God, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Allow us to see more than just physical tabernacles, physical altars, roles that different men fulfilled as, as priests, and let us see why you set it up that way, what it points towards, what it's inviting us to see about you. And then let us come away with a sense of awe that you're a God who prizes beauty, that the rich symbolism that we find in your word is because you're a God who is, has a poetic eye for beauty, for taking things in our physical world and having them echo your kingdom, which is going to be coming on earth as it is in heaven. So we look into these lofty things anticipating that this morning and prayerfully, God, spark a hunger in us for your kingdom to come here. In your name, amen. Cool. I'm going to reread um, the first four and a half verses here, and we're going to look at this idea of patterns seen, that there's mountains of patterns here. So um, definitely open up your Bibles. We're going to be going through a lot of text this morning. So again, then he, that's God speaking, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. <coughs> if you're a careful reader of the book of Exodus, you'll see that contrary to kind of the kids' Bible stories, Moses actually went up and down this mountain, which would have been four and a half hours each way or so, between six and eight times. So this guy has probably calves of steel, a bunch of climbing through here, and he's been interacting as that mediator presence between the people of Israel and God. And this whole section in chapter 24, it spans over 40 days. And this last trip where Moses goes up, seemingly without food or water, and waits God's presence, and then hears from God these tabernacle descriptions. For 40 days, he comes down after his last time up, hearing the Ten Commandments and what's called the Book of the Covenant, a bunch of other commandments, and he gives them verbally to the people here. We hear this eager answer that all the Lord has spoken, we will do. I'm not going to get into it today because that's for next week's topic, but as Moses is up there for these 40 days, does anyone know what's going on down at the base of the mountain? Disobedience? What kind of disobedience? Calf-making what? Calf-making kind of disobedience. Yes. Yes. The answer is golden. Thank you. Um, 
they are busy breaking the first two commandments completely. Like you'd think, okay, this has been 40 days. Like we can't, this eagerness of everything that God has said we will do, you can't just do that for 40 days. And yet, how often do we have these kind of, you know, in, in kind of church camp language, these mountaintop experiences, you know? I know growing up in the church, I'd come back from, from camp in the summer and just be on that camp high of like, I'm on fire for God. I want to do everything. I'm going to keep it. And then that <clears throat> is very well known to wear off, especially with teenagers, in a few days, maybe a few hours. And I think it's important for us to not criticize the zeal of the people of God here and not to assume that there wasn't intention in this, but to also push against a modern kind of cultural tendency to uh, the phrase, don't count the chickens before they hatched, right? Like to wait for fruit to appear. God says in a parable that the word of God is like seeds planted. And sometimes they seem to sprout up quick in that everything the Lord says we will do or that church camp experience, and yet they're plucked away. They don't actually grow to mature plant. And as, as believers, we're called to be a part of God making disciples not just people making big, grandiose decisions or declarations. And so I think one thing that we see here is echoed later on by Paul, someone who said that not all Israel was true Israel. They didn't actually have the heart of the people of God. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, talking about this idea of living the Christian life with endurance, not just kind of a quick spurt of excitement, but a long obedience do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And then if you jump down to the end of this chapter, he gives an example of this. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, talking about Israel here, were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. So over the next couple of weeks, as we see how Israel quickly went towards disobedience, and how God came in and said, there's going to be a new covenant coming. I'm going to make this right. Not because you deserve it, because I'm good. As we see that, we will see that we easily set our hearts on evil things, like Paul says. But the covenant God makes is from him, and he also fulfills our side of it in Jesus. So for a few minutes, before we jump into kind of the three areas of the mountain and look at how that, that, what that says about God, what that says about us... Um, I want to just look at those kind of briefly before we jump into the text. So first we see the base of the mountain, and that's, as we saw in the text, where Israel hears God, or hears through Moses, God's words, his commandments. The two, the two words that he uses there, his words and his ordinances, are talking about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and then all the ordinances, all the rest of the commandments that came in the next three chapters in 21, 22, and 23. And then in that place, they set up these 12 pillars that are supposed to represent their ancestors, the first 12 sons of Israel, the kind of the beginning of that nation. And they erect those, they set them up, <clears throat> and then make sacrifices. And that base of the mountain scene is in verses 3 through 8. 
Next up, we're going to look at the middle of the mountain where Moses went with his brother, Aaron, and with his nephews, a couple of Aaron's sons, and then 70 elders, uh, elderly men in the nation that were likely the men that Moses' father-in-law instructed that he set up to help judge and kind of carry on um, some of the burden of leadership. So these guys are up there, not at the summit, but kind of towards the top for this unknown amount of time where the text says they see God, which for those of us that know how God talks in the book of Exodus, that should be kind of alarming. We have 10 chapters later, this verse that says, no one can see God and live. So, we ha- so that's, that's weird right off the bat. It says they see God, and it also says they share a meal with him. That's going to be in verses 9 through 11. And then the last section we'll look at is the top of the mountain. Moses and an assistant alone are summoned to the, to the peak, to the top. And they spend 40 days and 40 nights there, and where God tells them to get all these materials, he gives them design for this massive tent, this what's called a tabernacle. He tells them the design, and he says that he wants to dwell with his people. God wants to be mobile with his people, not just stationed on a non-mobile mountain. So from where the, Israel's, where the Israelites were at the base of the mountain, it says that all they could see from that kind of peak point where Moses was with God was just a fiery presence, like a, devour, a devouring fire. So that's going to be in verses uh, 12 through 18. So this big idea of whether or not we believe that God does desire to draw near is going to be something we see, and we need to look at the questions, why these people? Like, they just seem like kind of crazy old Jewish names to us, but there's a specific reason why God chose these men to go to these different stations on the mountain. And then why are there different levels of the mountain? Why doesn't God just speak from the top to everyone at the bottom or invite everyone up? We want to ask that. Why 40 days to get measurements for a tent when he didn't spend nearly as much time for Ten Commandments? Like, why, why, why? I think what I want us to see is that the people and places have significance. They set up the rest of the book of Exodus and that the mountain of God has been a focus way before this point. If you guys remember when we first started this book, back in Exodus 3, do you guys know where Moses encounters God in the burning bush? Do you remember? I think the answer should be somewhat obvious. A mountain, this mountain. Yep, you guys got that one. Moses, Moses encounters the fiery bush, the presence of God at this mountain. We also see in Exodus 15, after they cross the Red Sea, part of their song they sing, it says, You, God, will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. There's many other places that I'm not going to go into in the, New, in the Old Testament that talk about the mountain of God almost synonymously with this place that God dwells, with his tabernacle. In fact, you see that in the way it says God dwelt on the midst, in the midst of the, the fire on the mountain. It's the same word, tabernacle. That was God's place of living. So the tabernacle that God is going to be making through his people that we're going to see in the next 15 chapters, it may sound very bland and boring as you read it because it's a lot of make this this length, use this kind of material, do this. But the more you look at the tabernacle and you ask the question, what is this meant to picture? What is this meant to represent? The more it comes to life. The tabernacle was made and comprised of three parts. 
if you think of just, I don't have it on a, a map or a screen, but you think of a big rectangle, and you think of on one side a smaller rectangle right there with another smaller rectangle in the middle. This section over here, the large area, was called the court. That was the area that was uncovered. There was an altar in the midst of it, and you entered from the east, moving west, towards this next section, which was called the meeting place, or, the most, or just the holy place. There was more um, imagery. There was garden imagery, a bunch of beautiful um, gold-laced things. And then this, the last little room was called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. It was comprised of those three parts. The priests and the elders are allowed into the holy place, but only the high priest was allowed into the most holy place. Like the priests, Aaron and his sons, and the elders would come forward towards the top of the mountain, but only Moses, acting as a high priest figure, was able to come all the way to that presence of God that was most powerful, the most kind of potent presence of God at the peak of that mountain. Um, a Bible teacher named Tim Mackey talks about God's presence in the tabernacle as Israel is wandering through the wilderness, as God kind of having like a hot spot for his people, you know, the place where he gets kind of full bars, full reception, you actually encounter kind of the potent presence of God in that place as it's moving around, you know. I, uh, I'm kind of telling you how old and out of touch I am, but I've never actually figured out how to get my phone to set up and do a hotspot, <laughs> but it seems very handy. <laughs> Being able to bring connection with that AT&T carrier on high, wherever you go. I was kind of like... <laughs> We actually switched over. I won't tell you what, because I feel like that's kind of misusing my pulpit here. But this idea that God's presence comes with them, like that hot spot, is kind of echoed by a uh, teacher named G.K. Beale in a book called God Dwells Among Us. He's quoted saying, Sinai is called the mountain of God where Israel worships. Just as with the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple, so Mount Sinai was divided into three sections of increasing holiness. The majority of the Israelites were to remain at the foot of Sinai. The priests and the 70 elders were allowed to come some distance up the mountain, but only Moses could ascend at the top and directly experience the presence of God. He wants to be near us, and so while he called his people to go out, he made a way for him to be with them and near them as they went. So let's start at the base of the mountain and work our way up looking at verse 4, in the second half of verse 4, looking at this kind of bloody scene at the base of the mountain where Moses takes the blood of oxen and makes a sacrifice. Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Someone is recommending I come up with a bucket as kind of like a prop. And just kind of this idea of, some translations say that Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. But it's the idea of he actually scattered half of the blood from these oxen 
on the people. And this idea that this was, this is a way for him to kind of finalize and show that the covenant was complete. The covenant was this agreement. It's like a legal agreement between people. You can think of it kind of like a marriage covenant where God said, these are my stipulations. The Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, this is what you need to do. And for the second time, they say, yes, Lord, we will do all of that. And then it gets to this weird blood thing. Like, why wasn't the word of the people enough? Why couldn't God just say, all right, I'm a man of my word. I trust that you guys keep your word. Why all of the blood? I think it's to show us preemptively, but also they've failed many times up until this point, that we're really unfit and unable to keep God's law. I think most of us know that deep down. We like to think, you know, these Ten Commandments, like do not murder. Okay, haven't done that one. That's good. We get to do not commit adultery, and we hear Jesus say, even if you've lusted in your eyes, that's adultery. Ooh, not so good. Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. These things, they start to get close, and we realize we're really not very fit to keep any of these commands. God knows that, and just, as the, just in the same way that blood is very uncomfortable for us to even think about. My mother-in-law, for example, like even the word blood, she gets woozy and leaves the room. <laughs> um, there's a, a lot of us that have that same feeling, and I think it's right. I think it's proper. Blood is meant to be uncomfortable because it, sim- it shows that something's wrong. Like blood is not supposed to be on the outside. Just generally, it's best kept within. There's something wrong. There's something that is broken, and, and it really equals death. The idea of us losing our blood, it, it equals that there's death that is coming. And so this idea of him putting half of the blood, Moses, on the altar, the place where they were to kind of make amends to God, and then taking the other half and sprinkling on the people, there's something that's shown that it's being applied to the people. Even though the payment was made by the animal, there's an application to the people. The blood is on them. Isaiah 52, you guys can read this at your leisure, but Isaiah 52 has this prophecy about Jesus the Messiah who was to come. And you guys might be familiar with this line that says, He, Jesus, will sprinkle many nations. There's this looking ahead to Jesus being the one that can take a payment that wasn't our own blood and yet sprinkle it on us so that we're covered by that payment. I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy section from Hebrews 9. If you guys want to open your Bibles, follow along. Hebrews 9.11. There's a ton of the same Exodus 24 imagery in this, and so you kind of have to follow along closely to see how the author of Hebrews is connecting all of it to Jesus, and he brings that connection with the blood atonement. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, verse 11. I'll read all the way through verse 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established. For a will takes effect effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly thing to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's a lot there, huh? <laughs> it's uh, enough to lead to many, many hours of Bible study, just looking at all the rich imagery that the author of Hebrews explains as being fulfilled in Jesus. There's some parts that the author of Hebrews doesn't even get to. But this idea of 12 pillars, you always erect these kind of pillars of remembrance after God has done a great work or right before he's able to. This was to show God's faithfulness in the same way when the tabernacle turned into the temple in the book of Kings, there were 12 pillars at the entrance of the temple. The altar and the sacrifices showed the people's present need, that it wasn't enough just to give their word of obedience but there's no way they can keep their word. So there needed to be a way to pay for sin. So it pointed forward to Jesus as the sacrifices pointed also towards the courts where there was an altar set up in the tabernacle as people made their way from the east to the west. So as we look at this idea of blood and we kind of, in our culture, many people in our culture are tempted to judge the God that we believe in as a God who is bloodthirsty or a God who is harsh or a God who needs to be appeased and couldn't he just look over everything? And yet the author of Hebrews says, no, that's, God is a God who is just. He couldn't just look over the very thing that would separate us from him, but he dealt with it. Sin is a picture that things are not right. Blood is a picture that we are all in sin. And the question to many people's um, or the answer to many people's questions, how could God allow bad things to happen to good people? 
That's a question about justice and injustice. But we have to balance the same question biblically with how could good things happen to bad people? That's a question of mercy. How could God allow us that are so far from him that rebel so often that would build a golden calf month plus after God's great deliverance and great law has been given to us? It's because our hearts are evil with evil desires, as Paul told us. So let's jump to the middle where we see Moses and the priests having this meal at the middle of the mountain. Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now, for those of us that know how the Bible ends, there's a lot of imagery here that seems to connect with the book of Revelation, this idea of streets paved with precious stone, this idea of being face-to-face with God. But as I said earlier, that idea of seeing God should kind of confuse us if we recognize that God also said through Moses that no one can see God and live. I think some of that is answered by looking at where they saw God. It says that they saw down by his feet, at his feet, they saw the stone. In a similar way, Moses has also been allowed to see the back of God. There's these the aspect where we get glimpses, but never kind of a full-on face-to-face vision of who God is. And so as, as Moses and the Levites, the sons of Aaron, see God, and they, they look at God's feet, but not a full-on, let's look to Jesus and what he says about this idea of who can see God. In John chapter 6, um, Jesus says this, that no one has ever seen the Father except the one who is from God, referring to himself. Only he has seen the Father. A little later, in chapter 14 of John's gospel, Jesus says very boldly, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So this idea of how can we see God, you know, in my experience, talking to people that are skeptical or non-believers, there's often this phrase like, well, if, if God's real, why can't he just prove himself to me? Like, if he's so evident, if your truth is so sure, then surely it shouldn't bother God to just prove himself to me. And yet we see all this need for atonement, all this need for a cleansing from sin, and then we see, as the book of Hebrews said, Jesus fulfilling that whole thing paying for all the problems and the pain and the sin and the shame in this world, and yet we look away to other things, saying, no, you'd have, to show me so, you'd have to show me yourself this way or that way. And yet Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We see in the meal that they partook in God's presence another picture of heaven. We see this great meal at the end of time in the book of Revelation. But we also see that whenever a covenant is made between peoples in this ancient culture, there would be a meal shared around that time. So it's connected to this covenant that they have begun with God. And it points, again, forward to Jesus when he brought that new covenant that Hebrews spoke of. He inaugurated it on the day before, the night before he was betrayed, saying, this is my body, looking at the bread. This is my blood, looking at the wine. Let's partake together. The Last Supper was that covenant-inaugurating meal. Jesus fulfills that. But this idea 
of being in the presence of someone with a meal, how many of you would love to sit down with your worst enemy? Like, think of the person that's burned you the most, the person that's hurt you the most, the person that's caused the most anger. What would it take for you to be convinced to sit across the table from them for an extended period of time and just eat with them? It's kind of an intimate place. Like, that's kind of the last thing we would be willing to do with the person that is so (laughs) uncomfortable for us. And yet God, knowing the people were in the middle of betraying him, still invites those representatives from Israel to come have a face-to-face meal with him. Whether we believe it or not, even when we're in this place of active rebellion, God is still inviting us to a meal with him. God does that weekly as we partake of communion, remembering that he has paid the price for our rebellion. When we betrayed him, he still comes near. The last thing we see is those that were invited up on the mountain were Aaron, his sons, and these elders. These were people that in the picture of the tabernacle, in the picture of the temple, were able to come from this court section into the holy place and offer sacrifices for the people. These were literally the middlemen on the middle of the mountain, able to kind of be that bridge between God and the people, Aaron and his sons, the priesthood. Additionally, you see some of the garb that's described, what they are to wear during their duties later in these chapters, and it talks about these precious stones they would wear on these vests, and it all kind of pictures this idea of them being in the beauty and the radiance of God's presence. So let's look lastly at the last section, the mountain top, and we'll see how Moses is the mediator at the mountaintop in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses steps into this place, into this kind of pinnacle of God's presence as the mediator of mediators, as a priest, but as the high priest. In the same way that as the Israelites have the tabernacle and they go in these rhythmic ways, to come and present themselves to God, it is only once a year on Passover that the high priest, the chief representative, the chief mediator of the people can go into that last room, the smallest and the most westward room called the most holy place. Some of us know it by the Holy of Holies. It's a place that was where the ultimate sacrifice for the priest himself and the sins of the people was made on that one day every year. The most holy place teaches us about who can access God. 
There's one who has that close access to God, ultimately. And we believe his name is Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews told us, Jesus entered into that place once and for all. Jesus entered into the presence of God, and rather than Moses, who saw part of God and yet was so overcome by the beauty and glory of who God was, the Bible tells us his face shone to the point that he had to wear a veil over his face so he wouldn't blind the Israelite people. The Bible tells us that Jesus has been not just face-to-face with God, but from God, from his very essence. He comes showing us the radiance and the glory of God the Father as the one who is able to access God because he was perfect. He was able to make a sacrifice that atoned for all sin. So when we look at Jesus, and the question is on our minds, how do we get right with God? I feel far from God. How do I change that? For those that are Christians, all it is is looking again to Jesus, remembering the work that he's done and applying that. His blood was shed and sprinkled for you, on you. You now can draw near with confidence to access the throne of grace, that holy of holy place, the place where God's presence is most potent, is there within you because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave you the ultimate holy of holies in himself, indwelling you. Where in this time, they had to meet God through his presence and his place on the mountain. Later, they would have to meet with God on certain rhythmic times as the people of God roamed through the wilderness. Later, as the temple was erected in Israel, in the promised land, they would still have to come to that geographical place. But now, in Jesus, who said, I am the temple, he is the place. John 1.14 says, Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Jesus was the place with the fullest expression of who God was, dwelt on earth. God with us, And now, in his death, in us trusting in him, God's presence now can dwell with us. The question of how can I feel close to God again, it's just a question about feeling. You are close to God as a believer. And it's through those rhythms of confession and repentance that we give those sacrifices and sacrifice ourselves as an offering to him and experience his presence. But he is there. For those that have not met Jesus that way, who do not know him that way, you don't have to travel to Jerusalem. You don't have to travel to the temple. You don't have to travel to Mecca. You don't have to do these rites hoping it brings you closer to him. You don't have to attend church faithfully. You don't have to read your Bible front to back. You don't have to try to get all the commandments right. In fact, none of that will work because you're going to fail in some of that. No matter what, it's going to be tainted. If I throw one drop of poison in a glass of water, it's not safe to drink as long as I avoid that drop. The whole thing is tainted. And it's through Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only door into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. He is the only way up the mountain. The world will tell you that all paths up the mountain lead to God. And that's not true. You will get to God of the mountain, but he will be a devouring fire for you, and you will be consumed because we're unholy. Jesus himself was consumed by the wrath of the Father. He took the payment and the penalty 
for our unholiness, for our sin, for our brokenness. So now we can actually sit there in the midst of the fire, the midst of that presence, the beauty, the gravity of the glory of God. And increasingly in our lives, as God changes us and brings us near to himself, we experience more of who God is. He dwells with us, and we walk with him. One of the uh, images that came to my mind as I was just thinking through what this kind of longing feels like to have that fully realized, to not have just the flesh that inhibits us from being close to God, to not have the same sin patterns that keep us in this need to confess and draw near again. I thought of C.S. Lewis and what he wrote at the end of his Narnia series in a book called The Last Battle. At the very end, there's a character that says this, experiencing this kind of culmination of, of all of, of Aslan, who was the picture of Jesus, of all of his work, this kind of picture of heaven in the end. It says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. We all want this. We all want this place of nearness to God, of being in the presence of our creator, of feeling like things fit, like we're right again, like feeling like we're not out of joint. We all desire and long for this. And God tells us through these rhythms of coming to him in confession, of coming to him in community, of coming to him through Jesus, further up, further in. I picture the mountain, further up. We're getting closer. We can access God's presence through Jesus. Further in, come from the east to the west, to the inner parts of the temple, and experience the near presence of God through Jesus. I think we often live at the base of the mountain, believing that it's just circumstantial those times that we feel close to God. And we judge God's presence based on our feelings rather than what Jesus has done. But the things that look a little something like the real thing, the tastes, the glimmers, the, the peaks, whether we believe it or not, God has already made a way for us to be near to him. And our believing that and believing that Jesus is the only way up that mountain, the only way into the holy place is all we need to be there with him. Join me in prayer. Father, I'm blown away by the beauty of what you've done, the way when it seemed to be there was no way for humanity to be right with you. Or it seemed that the, the more you showed us who you were through the story of the Bible, the more we just turned away from you, the more we rebelled. And yet, in Jesus, the law that could only come from the outside saying, do this and you should do that, in Jesus, the law came and changed our hearts, changed us from the inside. God, you didn't just come and tell us what to do, but you came and you lived all of that for us. And you said, I've done it. It's finished. 
Now walk with me. So God, this is a lot of theology, a lot of imagery, a lot of kind of old-sounding ways, but you still work the same way with us, Lord. You still desire to meet us in a special and a potent way in the presence of fellowship, in the presence of community, through hearing from your word the same way Israel heard from the book of the covenant, from meeting you in prayer, which we can do because we have a high priest who can intercede for us in Jesus. God, allow us to be faithful to come to the table that you've set, to join us in a meal with you, knowing that all we need to do is look to Jesus, to set our eyes on him, to take in the beauty of who you are, Father. So guys, we sing as we celebrate. Um, let our eyes be lifted up to the mountain to see you in your glory and to know that you are not far from us, but you are with that glory within us. So we thank you for that, for not leaving us at the base, but bringing us up in Christ. Amen.